0: Hi, listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. Straight through Huntington Ave. Uh, where are you right now, sir? Can you indicate to me? No, I don't know. I don't know. We've near a of an abandoned area. Okay, sir. Can you see out the windows? Can you tell me where you are, please? No. I don't know. I don't see any signs. Oh, God. Are you near Brigham Women's Hospital? No. We went straight through. What kind um, of car do you have, sir? I me?
1: Mean,
0: what kind of vehicle do you have? Toyota Cressida. Toyota Cressida? Toyota Cressida. It's, it's a... Are you in the city of Boston, though? Yes. Can you give me any indication where
1: you might be? Any buildings? Ah, uh, no. Okay. Has your wife been shot as well? Yes,
0: this is the story of Charles and Carol Stewart Charles also known as Chuck and his wife Carol have been married for four years and Carol was seven months pregnant Chuck and Carol had attended Lamas class at Birmingham and Women's Hospital and three minutes later that 911 call was made
1: she was seven months pregnant
0: seven months pregnant wow so Chuck told police officers that they were driving home from the hospital when a black man robbed them, shot Carol in the head, and shot him in the abdomen. When Chuck made that 911 call, you can tell he's disoriented and shocked, And at one point, he was going in and out of consciousness. And it took the dispatchers 13 minutes to find Chuck and Carol.
1: Yeah, I mean, he said he didn't know where he was at. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so it took them 13 minutes because Chuck was just so disoriented and going in and out of consciousness that Chuck was unable to tell the 911 dispatchers the exact location of where they were at. But that didn't slow down dispatchers because you see, the 911 dispatcher, Gary McLaughlin, was trying to get Chuck to respond to him after Chuck passed out. Okay, so he's on the phone with 911. He's trying to figure out where he's at. And eventually Chuck just passes out. When Gary heard police sirens over the phone, he immediately told the police dispatchers to have the police turn off the siren and then to turn them on one by one. Okay, so the dispatcher, right, because the dispatcher hears it on the call on his end right so now he contacted the police dispatcher and was like hey i need everybody in this area turn off the sirens and then start turning them on one by one to try and locate the car
1: right okay so he was closest by
0: mm-hmm yeah. yeah so it wasn't until like the third or fourth police officer that turned on the siren that gary heard the sirens again and they had that um, police car drive around until they found Chuck and Carol. So they're like, okay, so I can hear you. You're closed. And I guess the street that they were on, it was just like a very long street. So he just started driving in a direction until he found the car.
1: Right. Was he like on a cell phone or? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Cell phone. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, here's the crazy part. For this incident, I don't know if you remember it. But there was a show, I used to watch it with my grandma all the time too, along with like America's Most Wanted and other shows, there was a show called Rescue 911.
1: Oh yeah, I remember that.
0: Okay, so when paramedics got to the scene, there was a camera crew from Rescue 911, like recording all of this. That's so great. The rescue, <laughs> and it, yeah, 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 isn't it? Right. So that's how we know and like you can hear it and I'll play a clip for you, but... You can hear Chuck, like, as they're trying to get him help and get him out of the car. Mm -hmm. He's, like, telling paramedics to take care of his wife. And he's also, like, telling police officers, like, hey, this is what the suspect looked like. He was wearing this. He was able to give a description. Okay. And all this was captured by the camera crew. Okay. So... Chuck was taken to the Boston City Hospital where a surgical team worked on him for six hours to save his life, and they did. Okay. However, Carol was rushed back to the same hospital where they had attended the Lamas classes, and upon arrival, doctors rushed Carol into surgery to deliver the baby two months early via C-section. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, doctors are able to deliver the baby, but because the baby is two months early, the mm-hmm. baby is placed in a incubator. Okay? Then, at 3 a.m. on October 24th, 1989, Carol succumbed to her injuries. Then, on October 28th, 1989, Carol was laid to rest in Medford. And this is the crazy part. I read that 800 people... Including the Boston Mayor Ray Flynn and Governor Michael Dukakis attended Carol's funeral. So, however, even though eight hundred people attended Carol's funeral, her husband Chuck was not able to attend.
1: So, why why so many people? Were they? They
0: were like this. They were looked at this like very nice couple. Like very. I read in an article they were even compared to um, the Kennedys.
1: Okay, so maybe they ran into those circles, I guess. Uh-huh. Interesting. So, But Chuck- he didn't go.
0: No, because he's, he's still in the hospital. He's still recovering. Right. I see. So Chuck was still fighting for his life at the hospital, and he wasn't able to attend the funeral. But even though Chuck was not able to attend Carol's funeral, mm-hmm. Chuck did write a um, eulogy for Carol that was read out loud during the funeral. So I'm going to read you a copy of it okay so the eulogy said and i quote good night my sweet wife my love god has called you into his hands not to take you away from me or the happiness and gladness you brought me but to bring you away from the cruelty and the violence that fills this world he said that for us to truly believe we must know that his will was done and that there was something right in his meanest of acts in our souls we must forgive this sinner because he would too my life will be more empty without you as will the lives of your family and friends you have brought joy and happiness to every life you've touched now you sleep away from me I will never again know the feeling of your hand in mine but i will always feel you i miss you and i love you your husband chuck
1: that's heartbreaking Mm -hmm.
0: and unfortunately on november 9th christopher stewart that's the baby died of respiratory failure when he was 17 days old So the shooting, followed by the death of Carol and baby Christopher, struck anger all around Boston. And Mayor Flynn vowed to find the shooter and order Boston Police Commissioner Francis Roach to send every available officer into Mission Hill. And here is the direct quote from Mayor Flynn. I quote. I demand that the Boston Police Department continue to be extremely aggressive in cracking down on people who are using guns to kill innocent people. It's intolerable. We will use every lawful tool to support our police officers in cracking down on gun-wielding criminals. So as you can imagine, this was an overwhelming sense of revenge that was set in place with local leaders calling for a reinstatement of the death penalty in Massachusetts.
1: Wow, I mean, it was really, it's a powerful statement.
0: Yeah. But as you can imagine, this also raised a lot of eyebrows in the eyes of this community that the majority of people were African-American because they started to see that if a white person got hurt, then it mattered. However, if a African-American person died, then it would go unnoticed, which is really sad and I hate to say it, but like, obviously we do see, we still see that nowadays. Hence, you know, Black Lives Matter movement. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, you saw, you saw that go and that movement really took over the nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So more than a hundred additional officers were assigned to score Mission Hill, Roxbury and Mattapan searching for anyone who fit the description that Chuck gave to police officers. So police officers were searching for this African-American suspect by using a very controversial tactic, which is the use of stop and frisk in search for this alleged murder.
1: It's probably self-explanatory, but what does that mean?
0: So I'm going to play you a clip of the description that he gave when they were pulling him out of the car and putting him into the ambulance. Okay. Okay. Very conversant and, and lucid, and giving the Boston Police Officers quite a bit of information about what had transpired. And um, I was impressed with how how much detail and how much recall he had, um, considering what he had been through. Black, uh, what do you have on the wall? Remember? You're playing partner. You want to get on? Black white Any stripes
1: on it? What color?
0: So as you can hear, the description was very vague. It was that the attacker was African-American, had a raspy voice, and was wearing a black sweatshirt with red stripes. So on top of that very vague description and the use of the stop and frisk tactic that police were using. That meant that they could stop and frisk a citizen based on reasonable suspicion that a crime had been committed. And I use air quotes around reasonable suspicion because what they were doing was stopping any African-American male that matched that very vague description and stripping them on the streets looking for anything and everything that could give them a reason to arrest them okay wow yeah
1: that's very vague there's nothing to it in front of everybody I understand maybe at that point in time when the crime happened that you're looking for somebody that matches that shirt that description no no
0: no you don't understand like literally strip them like pull down their pants their underwear searching for drugs anything anything in in the middle of the street
1: but what is it? just because
0: they were African American
1: that makes no sense at all
0: so it was pretty much a police riot okay yeah that that's just how I'm going to put it to you. And I read in my research that during those first few days, African-American men were lining up on the street corners with their pants pulled down as officers searched their pants and underwear for drugs, guns or any excuse to arrest them. Okay, so as you can imagine, this was very humiliating tactic that they were using. Like I even read in my research somewhere that when they had all these men like lined up in the corner of the street, like there was African-American women standing there trying to protest against it and trying to block their sons and or husbands from the world. Seeing, you know, what was happening. This is
1: crazy. I mean, if you really think about it, this is not that long ago.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. From
1: the late 80s.
0: Yep. Wow. Mm -hmm. So about four days after the manhunt started in Boston, Police arrest a potential suspect Alan Swanson was a homeless was a homeless guy and squatting in an apartment building in the Mission Hill housing projects near where the stewards were found in their car okay so police found a black sweatshirt soaking in water in the apartment which matched Chuck Stewart's description of the killer Mm -hmm. and they arrested him they arrested Swanson. And after Alan was arrested, he was assigned a public defender. And Alan's public defender was convinced that Alan was just an easy target for the cops and that he needed to investigate the case himself. So he, right away, when he got assigned the case, he was like, there's something wrong here. Yeah. You know? So do you want to know what Alan's public defender said during the phone interview he gave?
1: I'd love to. What do you say? (laughs)
0: So he said that when he visited Allen in the city jail, Allen had complained that guards were harassing him. He had to be kept separate from the prison population because he was accused of killing a pregnant woman and words had spread that he'd actually done it. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't eat because guards were spitting in his food. He couldn't sleep because they also banged on his cell door throughout the night to startle him and if you think that's not bad enough the public defender said that when he was announced as Allen's public defender death threats started flooding his office
1: i bet i mean this is just from the political aspect of things we have the was it the mayor that made that Mm -hmm. that announcement Mm -hmm. that's kind of fueled a lot of this right and then now doing the stop and frisk and then oh yeah all of that just mm-hmm.
0: and craziness. it was a big yeah it, it was just it was bad so it got to the point where his secretaries couldn't answer the phone anymore and he even said that police officers had given him bulletproof vest and told him to wear it at all times even while at home so alan was held for three weeks before police started to zero in on another suspect. That suspect was Willie Bennett. Willie Bennett matched the description that Chuck had given. He was roughly the right age and height and had a raspy voice. He also had a history of committing violent crimes, including two other shootings. Then on December 28th, police bring Chuck for a lineup and Chuck identifies Willie Bennett as the man that had jumped into his car that night shot his wife and him. He said that Willie believed that Chuck was the cop. Police officers said that when they brought Chuck in and that when Chuck saw Willie Bennett in the lineup, that Chuck had a physical reaction when he saw Willie and when he was able to identify him. So he, like, he even, like, it... It was just,
1: like, a natural reaction of Like fear. this...
0: <laughs> yeah, like, it just brought this, like... Just this physical reaction from him, you know, probably almost, like, reliving. I don't know. I don't know, right? Yeah, I mean, right? I guess,
1: like, PTSD, right? I mean, you have to have something. of something so tragic that it mm-hmm. occurred. Yeah. So, what about the other guy? Going back to the other guy, was there ever a lineup for him?
0: For who? For Alan? Yeah. No, because they had found him squatting behind, like, some apartment. So, he was homeless, but they found that black sweatshirt, remember I told you? So, they were like, oh, then this is him. But then... Yeah, of course it's him. Again... <laughs> That's this whole thing, this whole case, is ridiculous. That okay, guy. right. <laughs> so Willie Bennett is arrested because Chuck was able to identify him. So, so what happened, to Alan? They caught him, right? They let Alan go. Okay? okay. So obviously now Willie Bennett is arrested and the killer is caught. Good thing, right?
1: Okay. Well, the thing I'm going to say tell me something different.
0: <laughs> well, a few days later. After police arrest Willie Bennett for the crime, Chuck's brother Matthew went to the police to set the record straight. Matthew told police officers he knew Chuck was up to something, but didn't know that he was going to kill Carol.
1: Oh, I knew it. I knew you were going to do that. I was just waiting this entire time waiting. You're going to tell me that he actually did it himself, didn't you?
0: (laughs) But you were like almost in tears when I read you his eulogy.
1: Well that's when I kinda of, kinda of mm-hmm. turned. I was like, okay, no, but couldn't have been him.
0: Oh, you finally started listening to the podcast, huh? You're no uh. longer shocked. <laughs> so the two brothers had met the night of the shooting and Matthew had taken from his brother a Gucci bag containing a gun and jewelry. Matthew drove to a river where he ended up tossing the items on the side of the Dizzy Bridge. So Matthew said he finally came forward when he realized that Chuck had fingered Willie Bennett for the crime and that another man would be charged for the murder. So in 1991, Matthew Seward, who helped his brother by taking a bag, no questions asked,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and dumping it into a river, was found guilty of obstruction of justice and insurance fraud. John McMahon, the friend who helped Matthew dispose of the evidence, was also convicted on obstruction charges. And in September of 2011, Matthew Stewart died from a drug overdose in Cambridge in a homeless shelter. Hmm. Okay. So in the days that followed, news surfaced that Chuck had received life insurance's payout of $82,000, so Chuck took some of that money and bought a new car.
1: Of course, would he get like a Porsche or something?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what what was the car that he ended up buying. But uh, news of Chuck's activities in the weeks before and after the murders came all of a sudden, spilling all out. Wow! Just days before he jumped to his death, he was in Peabody buying jewelry for. A secret girlfriend. Mm So on January 3rd, 1990, Chuck Stewart, this hero father of a murdered son and husband of a slain wife, jumped from the Tobin Bridge to his death. Police officers found Chuck's new car that he had bought without insurance money that he had received from Carol's death. And in the car, they found a note. However, Chuck didn't admit to killing his wife in that note okay so yeah. it was like remorseful but he didn't actually like say hey yeah He's i did it. feel bad mm-hmm. but he
1: didn't admit to the crime
0: yeah so the invasive use of the stop and frisk tactic didn't stop even after police officers had pulled chuck's body out of the mystic river african-american leaders in the city protested police actions and media reports during a time where an entire African-American community was characterized as criminals. So the day after Chuck's suicide, Mayor Flynn said that the city owed Mission Hill an apology. He went to Willie Bennett's mother's house to apologize. But the family was disappointed that Mayor Flynn stayed just for a minute and didn't even want to sit down. A commission was formed to investigate the police use of of excessive force during the manhunt for Carol Stewart's killer. In December 1990, a year after the killing, a report was released by Massachusetts Attorney General, James Shannon, that said police coursed witness statements from residents during the manhunt. The most disturbing findings are those of public strip searches. Shannon said at a news conference, There is no excuse for forcing young men to lower their trousers or for police officers to search within their underwear in public streets. He added, despite the harsh condemnation, the police force didn't altogether do away with the policy. So in fact, 25 years later, in 2015, the Massachusetts ACLU released a report Nothing that the practice was still being used to discriminate against African-American and Latino men in Boston.
1: This is still happening in
0: 2015?
1: Yes. That's incredible. It's still happening. Really?
0: You know where they actually stopped using that tactic?
1: Where?
0: Just New York. That tactic till today is being used to stop and frisk. And again, it's. It's if the police officer finds reasonable doubt. But again, when I say that, I'm using air quotes because I can just pull, pull you oh, over yeah. and say, oh, you know, you fit the description of a murder, but I heard it was just a Mexican guy. So I'm pulling you over. Yeah, And that's the only description, you know.
1: But, but I guess when I hear it stop and frisk, it sounds... I'm thinking like a pat down or something.
0: No, well, that, that's apparently not that's what they were, not what it is. <laughs> that's not what they were doing, right? So the Seward case remains a source of racial tension in the city. So one act of healing came from Carol Stewart's family, the Dimattis. Carl Dimatti, Carol's brother, set up the Carol Dimatti Stewart Foundation. For 25 years, the foundation was run by volunteers who finance and. Guided Mission Hill High School students to attend college. Okay, Jose, so I know that every week I do bring a open case from Crime Stoppers. However, this week I want to do something different. I want to talk about DNA and how far along we have come since even the 80s, which is, you know, not that far. Yeah, really not that long ago. So I want to tell you about a cold case that has been open since 1981 and they just solved the case the last two days. Wow. Oh. Due to DNA and funny enough, you know how they caught the Golden State Killer through that genealogy website. Right. Well, police use that same tactic here and that's how they were able to find it. Yeah. So today I'm going to tell you about how after nearly 40 years, Sacramento law enforcement finally found the person responsible for the death of Mary London. Sacramento Police Chief Daniel Hahn and County District Attorney Anne Marie Sherburn announced on Wednesday that Vermin Parker is the sole suspect in this murder. So, unfortunately, in this case, Vernon Parker was killed in 1982, one year after he allegedly killed London. I guess in this situation, justice, in a way, isn't going to be served since he died in 1982. But, you know, obviously, closing a cold case of this long has to bring closure to the family.
1: Right.
0: So that's. You know, that's
1: always a good thing. I mean, it's always what we say during the crime stoppers. A lot of these are, you know, margins and we're just trying to find closure.
0: Yeah. So um, I read in an interview with ABC 10 that on Wednesday, London's sister, Esther Schneider, said that she was thankful that law enforcement were able to solve the cold case of her sister's death. She said that they really did work very hard to find out who did it. And she's just thankful for everyone that was on the case, that they never gave up. So, London was 17, and she was developmentally disabled, and she was a Sacramento high school student who was reported missing on January 14th, 1981 after she didn't show up for her scheduled ride to school. The following day, London's Mostly nude body was found stabbed multiple times near San Juan Road west of Interstate 5, and for decades detectives had returned to London's case, hoping to find the person responsible. And in 2016, 35 years after London was killed, detectives reopened the case, asking for the community's help in finding a man named Daryl. And Daryl was not listed as a suspect, but he was a friend of London's. Um, who officers needed to speak with. So that was four years ago. Now, nearly 40 years after London was killed, police believe they now know who is responsible. Sherber said that the use of genealogy helps solve the decades-old cold case. DNA and genetic genealogy has been transforming police work in recent years. The combined DNA index system, you know, I'm sure you've heard of it, CODIS, Mm -hmm. Is used by law enforcement to identify suspects who have previously been arrested, but the system is very limited. And over the years, law enforcement determined that they would need to utilize investigative genetic genealogy, which differs from traditional DNA testings in order to solve more cold cases. So when I say, you know, it differs from traditional DNA testing, let me just tell you, it's not like they went to 23andMe, so we don't need people to panic and be like, oh my God, I did 23andMe. Oh, that's what I was
1: thinking
0: this entire time. No, 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 no. So some agencies begin working with Gene by Gene. Gene by Gene is the parent company of Family Tree DNA. They have their own lab and its own database of people who have uploaded their own test online in order to trace their ancestry. While law enforcement does not have access to search the family tree DNA database, they are given matches of their samples. From there, it becomes a tool to narrow down the suspect. This is the same technology that was used in the case of the suspected Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. So, I mean, I think it's great to see how much forensics has come along and, you know, especially with DNA, I feel like forensics has really made big strides in just the past year or two, you know, we're now with this whole like genealogy websites and stuff, how they're able to trace it back. I think that's great. You know, it does seem
1: like a game changer. You see a lot of of movement on a lot of cold cases because of the
0: Right. And, you know, this case was it's 40 years, you know, and to finally bring that closure to the family, like, can't imagine that has that has to feel great, even though, you know, unfortunately, like, usually it always makes me so mad when it's like the person that did wrong ends up taking their life or, you know, because they don't pay justice. But at least the family now knows what happened. Right. They know who's responsible. Right. You know, I think that's great so instead of bringing another cold case to our listeners i just wanted to do something different and show that you know there is some good in the world if you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com you can also follow us on instagram at podcast true crime weekly and I would truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five star review and subscribe onto Apple Podcast. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening.